part of the after lunch bunch, <laughs> which is always the fun bunch. Yeah. And uh, we are going to have a good time this afternoon. It's always great to be here in um, Western North Carolina. Um, and, you know, I grew up here, and so coming home to the mountains is, is always like coming home, and uh, just being in the mountains is, is beautiful. Um, I wish that my family were here with me. All the girls are in school, and they uh, can't, can't take them out of all school, but I did bring a picture to show you my portable sorority. Um, I have one wife and six daughters, and uh, they are the joy of my life. And uh, it's, um, I'll try to get them here one of these years for sure. Um, in addition to that, oh, name them all. Oh, okay, so name them all. Okay, this is Jean, my wife. Then here's Julia, she's 22 on her way to Japan. Here's Mariah, she's in her third year of university. Savannah's a senior, Joanna is a junior, Liza's a sophomore, and then Sierra is in about seventh grade. And so that's the, that is the, the clan right there. Um, you know, another place, rather than bringing them here, I wish you could have gone there with me. I was just in Ternopil, Ukraine, and with our church there, um, celebrating the 20th anniversary of this church plant in Ukraine. Dean Simpson was a part of that back in the early days. And this is kind of like, you know, when you look at CBU, sort of the main thing that most people see are the conferences, which is kind of like an iceberg sticking up above the water. Below that really is all the substantive stuff that God enables us to be doing all around the globe. And if all you do is come to a conference, you're just, just seeing the tip of the iceberg. It, it's amazing the doors that God has opened for us around the world. One of those is just in, in Ukraine. And uh, in af right after this session, we have a, a reach out club gathering at 3.30 up in Lakeside or Lakeview Room right upstairs. And for all of our reach out club members, I hope you can come and be there with us at 3.30. We'll just give a little bit of an update. If you're not a reach out club member and would like to learn more about what CBU is doing around the world and what God's up to with us, would invite you to come along too and learn how you can be a part of all this. But I'm going to talk more about Ukraine at that meeting. It's absolutely exciting to see what God is doing there. All right, so we're going to come and work with our theme a little bit this afternoon. Um, as Pastor Jim and Charles ha have already done, our preeminent Christ. And I just echo the words uh, that Pastor Charles this is an intimidating topic to deal with. Our preeminent Christ. That's like somebody handing you a teaspoon and saying, here, go empty the Pacific Ocean. Good luck with that. Um, but we are going to, to focus our thoughts a, a little bit this, this afternoon. And we're going to look at this theme eventually from a missiological perspective. Um, you know, this, this question of who Jesus is, this is one of the primary things that we see Jesus himself unfolding with his disciples. There, from the moment he showed up saying, follow me, through the Gospels, there's this gradual unveiling to his disciples of who he is. But this question that Jesus asked at Caesarea Philippi, who do you say that I am? This is still 
a central question for us. We have to have absolute clarity about who Jesus is. There's a world out there that desperately needs the Jesus that we have. And if we're not clear about who Jesus is, we'll fumble the ball on the goal line of sharing with this planet this beautiful news about a Savior who loved them so much that he died for them. And so this afternoon, we're going to go back to this text that we glanced around a little bit at this morning. You know, when Jesus asked that question, who do you say that I am? Peter gave kind of a summary answer. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. Well, in Colossians chapter 1, Paul goes a little bit deeper in framing who this is. So we're going to read this text together again and then pray and ask God to give us some understanding. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. For the thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's go to God in prayer just a moment and ask him to, to unpack his word for us this afternoon. Our God, we come in all humility, understanding that unless you open our minds to understand, we won't. Unless you reveal yourself to us, we don't get it, O oh God. So, Lord, we invite you to come. Lord, open our minds, grant us clarity, grant us understanding. And Beyond that, God, we ask that you would move on our hearts and on our wills, that we would be moved as you are moved, that we would not simply understand with our minds, but that we would obey in our hearts, O oh God, that we might be faithful in this day and age and place and time in which you've placed us, God. Lord, we ask for your help with this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when Paul was writing here to these Colossians, the city of Colossae, it was a little bit different than strolling down downtown Black Mountain. Um, as if you were on your way to church, as you're just walking down the street, you're passing a whole lot of different pagan temples. Uh, to understand part of what Paul is trying to do in writing these things to Colossians, we need to remember this very pagan context in which they were working. The, the dominant Greco-Roman religion was, was pantheistic. There, there was a, a pantheon that had a lot of different gods. 
and you could sort of worship one of them or all of them, but there were a whole variety of, to choose from. This is a, a Burger King kind of religion. Let us, you can have it your way, whatever you want to worship. You could do it in Colossae. There were lots of different options. And at the top of the, the mountain, so to speak, was this god Zeus, the father of gods and men. And he was the god of sky and thunder. He ruled all from Mount Olympus. And Paul is writing to the Colossians to remind them about the identity of this Jesus whom they have already believed in. He's saying that Jesus is preeminent above all that. As they're on their way to church, they're, they're tempted, they're, they're seduced, they're noticing these pagan temples that where they used to worship before they used to worship Jesus. And there were some, some people that were on the periphery of the church who were saying, hey, we've got some inside information. Yeah, it's okay to have Jesus, but there's more. And so one of the words that you meet here in Colossians over and over is the word fullness. Paul's reminding them Jesus is the fullness. If you've got Jesus, you've got not just the main deal, you've got the whole deal. And there's no one like him. There's no one who has done what he's done. So Paul is writing into a context where there's intense religious uh, competition for the affection of God's people. Paul is saying, you've already got the right one in Jesus. Forget these other gods. Now, if we fast forward from Colossae through, hop into a time machine and come into our current day, when you're on your way to church, you don't have to drive past pagan temples to Zeus and Athena. But if we're slightly honest this afternoon, we will recognize that here in our American culture, there are some idols. There are things that vie for the affection of God's people. Now, an idol is anything that you look at for salvation. An idol is anything that, that is ultimate in your life. Anything that you give prominent place to. And in our nation, there are a whole lot of things that are vying for the affection of people. Pastor Tim Keller wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods. In this particular book, he identified money, sex, and power as three things that dominate the American landscape. But the interesting thing about the United States, it's not like we want money, sex, and power, and we don't want God. The interesting thing about the United States is that we want God to be included in the picture. So we want our idols, and we want God. And so we make our politicians in, speak, in their speeches by saying, and God bless America. Now, they might be the most pagan person on the planet, but we expect them to say, God bless America, because we want God to be included. We just don't want him to run the show. Now, the missiological word for this is syncretism. Now, syncretism is the blending of two belief systems. Syncretism is when the gospel gets blended with the worldview and that is present in a dominant culture. And so when the gospel and, and this other worldview, this, this other value system get blended together, it produces something that is sub-Christian. 
So we have to recognize that we're living at a time when American cultural views are being blended with biblical views to produce a theological perspective that sounds Christian, but it's not. It's syncretistic. It sounds like the gospel, but it's actually American cultural values packaged in gospel language. And so recently, this was just published a couple of weeks ago, Ligonier Ministries had commissioned a survey to find out what are the theological perspectives of the American population. They did a survey with over 3,000 Americans, and statistically that's a very accurate survey. You can look the details up on the Ligonier website, but I just want to mention a few of the highlights. Regarding God, only 60% of people in the United States believe that Jesus is fully God and has a divine nature and fully human with a human nature. Only 60%. 56% of people believe that the Father is more divine than the Son. 40% of people believe that the Holy Spirit is less divine than God the Father and Jesus. Um, go on to the next one. Yeah, here we go. And 89% of people believe that the Holy Spirit is a force, not a person. Regarding man, only 18% of people believe that even the smallest sin deserves eternal punishment. 67% of people think that everyone sins, but most people have a good nature. And regarding salvation, 47% of people believe that salvation is possible through a means other than Jesus. 45% agree that there are many ways to get to heaven. 64% believe that a person obtains peace with God first by taking the initiative to seek God, and then God responds with grace. 71% of people believe that a person must contribute their own effort for their personal salvation. So theologian R.C. Sproul summarized it like this. There are two primary problems. Number one, we don't understand who God is. And number two, we don't understand who we are. So what we've done is that we've made God less than He really is. We've made sin less than it really is. We've made salvation less than it really is. But we've made ourselves more than we really are. That's the United States. So this American cultural values kind of shine through this survey and it can be summarized around this word self-sufficiency. I can make it on my own and I really don't need anybody's help. Now we might think that this is a new idea but I would hold out before you and please don't stone me now. You can stone me after I finish preaching. I would hold out the idea that this idea goes back to Benjamin Franklin, who said, God helps those who help themselves. That is American religion. That's American syncretism. God is somebody who comes along people who are already doing pretty well for themselves. That's the American view of salvation. Be all you can be, and God will help you out. Now, obviously, all of that's contrary to Scripture, but it's related to our theme because in the United States, Jesus has just become 
one of the superheroes among other superheroes. So in that context, evangelism simply becomes my superhero's better than your superhero. And that means that that debate is already lost. Now, I think that if Paul were writing a letter to the church in America, I think he'd start exactly where he started with the Colossians. I think he would come back and say, hey, I want to remind you this is who Jesus is. Now, I want to make some applications of this, but first I want us to go back and look at these scriptures that, um, that, that remind us. This magnifying glass here, this is the challenge that's before us today. Our tendency is to look at God through the lens of our own culture. You can go anywhere around the world and this happens. You can go to Brazil, you can go to Jamaica, you can go to China, and that is people put on a cultural lens as the means by which they try to understand God. Our task this afternoon is to reverse that perspective. Rather than viewing God through our culture, we want to ask for God's help to view our culture the way that God sees it. So to reverse this, we're going to go back and look at some of these highlights that Paul gave us about who Jesus is and then see if we can get a little bit of what his perspective might be on our own nation. So this is what Paul wrote to the Colossians. The first thing that he said is that he is the king of the cosmos. He says that by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authority. All things were created through him and for him. You know, Paul is reminding us that creation is not just a point of debate. The doctrine of creation is central because the God whom we worship and we serve exists outside of creation. He is uncreated. And that distinction between that which is created and that which is uncreated is absolutely essential. Paul explains this in the Romans chapter 1 that when we give place to idolatry, we exchange the glory of the uncreated for the glory of the created. Um, when you go back and, and look at like Jeremiah, and uh, you know, Jeremiah ha ha had a fun ministry. Um, you know, he, he had one guy who I think finally decided, okay, I'll, I'll join your team, Baruch, and he, um, what a difficult time to, to, to be a prophet in, but he, he was perpetually calling out the, the, the nation's affinity towards this idol worshiping, and the, these, these idols of, of Baal and Astra were simply personifications of nature, again, doing what Paul had said, they exchanged the glory of the creator for that of creation. Um, you know, th this, this idea of Jesus being king of the cosmos as the one through whom and by whom this planet and this universe were created, this is a central deal. John confirms the same thing in John 1 when he says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The whole debate about creations is not just a Genesis 1, 2, and 3 debate. This is something that goes all through Scripture. Ultimately, God claims sovereignty over planet Earth. 
and over the universe and over everything else because he made it. So when we're not talking about Jesus, it's not just a superhero who's part of the created order. We're talking about the one who made the created order. He's king of the cosmos. The second thing that Paul writes here is that he's head of the church. It says in verse 18, he's the head of the church, the head of the body, the church. Um, we could spend a lot of time on this one because there are all kinds of implications that come from Jesus being head of the church. One of them is this. The church is his. Whenever you talk about the church, please remember you're talking about something that belongs to Jesus. In Acts chapter 20, in this talking with the elders as he's saying farewell, Paul reminds them about how precious the church is to Jesus. He says he purchased it or obtained it with his own blood. This thing called the church is precious to him. He died for the church. He obtained the church with his blood. In Matthew chapter 16, in this conversation with Peter, Jesus makes this strong affirmation, I will build my church. Now that, that's a hopeful verse because it tells us that the church is not finished. You know, my dad used to have this, might still be there, this little sign on his desk that said, Christian under construction. Now, what does that mean? It means that God is in the process of shaping him to be experientially what he already is positionally or legally. Legally or positionally, he is seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He's been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And that's a beautiful thing. But I heard that 27 days ago, he did a little sin. I know some of you are dumbfounded by that. I was too. What it means is that there's still some construction that's happening. Now, if that's true of our lives, it's also true of the church. The difference is that we tend to give ourselves a whole lot more grace than we do other people. <coughs> See, <laughs> we just give ourselves all kinds of grace. And, uh, but yet we expect other people to, to already, already be measured up and fully conformed to the image of Jesus. No, when we use the word church, what are we talking about? People. The church is God's people. That's what the church is. It belongs to Jesus, and he's the head of it. And yes, the church is imperfect. Yes, the church is in process. But it's absolutely precious to him. Now, like I said, you can stone me at the end of this if you want to, and that's okay. You can critique me. You can, you can say unkind things. That, that's all okay. However, don't you dare talk about my wife. <laughs> Where I come from, you know, it's fighting words. You can say whatever you want to to my face. The church is the bride of Jesus. Why do we take such liberty with our master's bride? This church belongs to Jesus. He is the head of the church. He claims ownership. He claims responsibility. And trust me, this church will fully become ultimately 
what it is he intends it to be. Number three, Jesus is the first of a new humanity. In verse 18, it says that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. He is the initiator and the author and the forerunner of a new humanity. The first humanity was created in the image of God. But it was a humanity uh, whose image of God was warped and mangled through the effects of sin. This new humanity is now being conformed to the image of Jesus. Jesus is in the process of establishing this new order and he inaugurated it through his resurrection by becoming the prototype of that into which he is making us. And so Paul is reminding these Colossians that Jesus isn't just a God, but he was the one who died and was raised from the dead. Praise God for that. Now it says in Romans 8, 28 and 29 that we're in the process of being conformed to his image. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 15, that, or chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15, that we will also partake of this resurrection. So Jesus is the first of a new humanity. This is what God is in the process of making us. And the fourth thing is that Jesus is the Lord of salvation. Um, you know, a lot of the songs that we have sung have been songs celebrating our salvation. Well, my chains are gone. I've been set free. I don't know about you, but I never get old. It, it never gets old to me. I actually, I, I do get a little bit old in, in process, but, I'm, but it never gets old for me to praise Jesus for saving me. Um, I just, I, I'm, I'm so grateful when we understand, again, who God is in his utter holiness, who we are in our sinfulness, the fact that he would condescend and save us. This is, this is all I need to celebrate. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Paul takes pains to remind these Colossians about this beautiful salvation. In verse 13, he describes it like this. We've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God. This is our residence transfer. We used to be residents of the kingdom of darkness. Now we're residents of the kingdom of light. In verse 14, he says, in him we have redemption. We've been purchased. We have the forgiveness of sins. Praise God for that. And in verse 20, it says that he makes peace by the blood of his cross. Now, one big thing here is look at where all of the action verbs are. Who's doing the action? Jesus is. Jesus is the one who saves. Jesus transfers us from the domain. Jesus is the one who redeems. Jesus is the one who makes peace. That's why when we celebrate our salvation, we're celebrating Jesus. He's the Lord of salvation. The gospel is the good news that God saves sinners. Now, in our American humanism, we like to think that we're adding some, some stuff to that. Now, we work and cooperate with God in our sanctification, but we have absolutely nothing to do with our justification. We cannot justify ourselves, and we don't add one drop to our justification. 
were justified, declared not guilty completely on the basis of what Jesus did. You try to add one iota to that, and you're messing with the gospel. And Paul said in Galatians, that's not a good idea, because there's one gospel. If you mess with it, then you've lost the gospel that is the gospel. Jesus gave us a picture of this when he raised Lazarus from the dead. Um, I mean, how much did Lazarus contribute to that? Lazarus, come forth. Well, okay, Jesus, let me get my act together first, and then I'll come forth. When Jesus spoke, Lazarus came forth. What a beautiful picture of our salvation. Jesus is the one who has acted so that we could be saved. Now, when we view that through the lens of our American get-it-done kind of thing, that violates us because we don't like the idea that we can't contribute to this deal. You know, you go out to eat with somebody and you, the, at the end of the meal, the argument breaks out over who's going to pay for it. Say, no, I'm not going to let you, I'm going to pay for it. And just, well, with this whole salvation deal, you can't pay for it. Jesus has already paid for it. And his blood was absolutely sufficient. And there's not a thing, not a thing that you can add to what he's done. Praise God for that. Well, the next one, number five, is this. Jesus is the first and the last. In verse 17, it says, He's before all things. In Him, all things hold together. Um, what a beautiful definition of eternity. It's not time that goes on forever. What was it, Pastor Charles? Eternity? No time at all. No time at all. That's a very profound thought. Go home and ponder that one. For, there, there's no time at all. In other words, eternity is not quantitative, it's qualitative. And so we have eternal life, not a life that goes on forever. It's a whole different category of existence. Praise God for that. That's incredibly deep. But it comes out of this, that's who our God is. Jesus exists outside of time. Jesus is from the domain where there is no time at all. Now, he stepped into time. He works in time. He created time. He understands time, but that's not his normal domain. Now, this little phrase, in him all things hold together. Um, I did a whole sermon once on, on that little phrase, and we're not going to go there today, but when you go down to the subatomic level and start exploring what's happening with quarks and, and gluons and these subatomic particles that I really don't understand. You know, I can barely understand the people who understand it or trying to make it understandable. But you, you, you walk away thinking, the only way that this deal works is because Jesus is holding it together at the subatomic level. Without that divine holding it together, the whole thing unravels. Now, uh, another thing that would just, this is, this is just a fun statistic that, you know, in, in a, in an atom, you got the, the, the nucleus and the electrons flying around, and that's the electron cloud. And um, on a scale, if, if, the, if the nucleus was the size of a basketball, the electrons are like, you know, little peas that are, that are a long way away from. And so most of an atom is just space. So 
scientists have done the math and concluded that you could boil, if you took out all the space of all the atoms that make up all the people on planet Earth, we could be condensed to the size of a sugar cube. That's how much space there is. And so it kind of gives a new little insight in that he made all of this out of nothing. In some ways, we're still almost very much nothing. John affirmed this, in the beginning was the word. David confessed this, my times are in your hand. What a beautiful phrase. My times are in the hands of the one who lives where there is no time. Praise God for that. Now, what this means for Jesus is that he is not simply an enlightened teacher working within time. Jesus is the eternal Son of God as part of the Trinitarian Godhead, one God who eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus taught his disciples in John 8, 58. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He just is. Now, that really got the religious leaders of his day riled up a bit. They didn't appreciate that. They didn't have a category for a rabbi who said, I am. Jesus was presenting them with a paradigm that they had not considered. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He's reminding these Colossians that they were not just walking down the street and found a temple that was a better temple than the other temples. Paul's reminding them that, guys, you've stepped into a reality that is of a whole different category. You are sons and daughters of the living God. You've been purchased by the blood of the one who is eternal. They had already heard all this, but he's reminding them. Why? Because as they're walking down the street of Colossae, these other gods are calling to them. These other idols are seducing them. They're trying to tell them, your Jesus really isn't all that. And Paul's writing to say, oh yes, he is. And finally, he summarizes it by saying he is the preeminent one. He is the one that in everything he's going to be preeminent. The New American Standard says so that, in, that he himself might come to have first place in everything. Now, one way to understand this statement is that if you look at something and Jesus doesn't have first place in that, whether it's a family or whether it's a church or whether it's an institution or whether it's a culture, wherever you see a place that Jesus isn't in the first place, that's a place where one day he will be. Jesus will have first place in everything. This is how God has set up this deal. So just to summarize this, before we make some application, this is what we know about Jesus from what Paul just wrote to the Colossians. He's king of the cosmos. He's head of the church. He's the first of a new humanity. He's the Lord of salvation. He's the governor of history, the first and the last. He's the preeminent one who has first place in everything. That's who Jesus is. Praise God for that. Now here's the question that I want us to ask. 
all of that's just sort of the foundation. Here's the question. What does this mean for us as we're trying to follow Jesus in American culture? What does this mean for us in our cultural context? Again, our problem is that in the United States, like other nations around the world, we try to view God through the lens of our American values rather than viewing our American values through the lens of who God is. And so we see God as less than he is. We see ourselves as more than we are. Now, because, because I have the, the opportunity to live in, in a different place, um, you know, culture is a tricky deal. It's, it's kind of like asking a fish about the water. You ask a fish about the water and they, they don't know what you're talking about because that's their habitat. It's like asking me, what does it feel like to have a big family? I don't know. I don't have a big family. I have a normal family. For me, one wife and six daughters is normal. For me, anything more than one wife would be abnormal. That would be big. Or maybe nine daughters would be big. Three daughters would sound like a small family. So when you ask someone about theirs, it's hard to see your own situation. But the good news is that, for, for me, is that you know, I, I live outside of our culture and get to visit back into it every now and then. And it's always, I have to change cultural gears. It's a weird thing, and I have to do it going back the other way, too. Um, going back the other way, I'll walk into a restaurant and say, yeah, I'd like unsweet iced tea with no lemon, please. i say, excuse me? <laughs> They don't do iced tea or sweet tea over there in Scotland. And coming back here, I was just sitting in the airport the other day, and you know, it's been a while since I've been back here in the United States, and I was watching the television, and I didn't so much care about what was on the, the, the show, that was some news thing, but I was intrigued by the commercials. And after I had watched a couple of rounds of commercials, I came away feeling very inferior about myself. I said, well, to come back and actually be genuinely American again, there's two changes that I've got to make. Number one, I've got to start eating a whole lot more fast food. Well, that's all they're showing up here. And apparently to be American, you just eat. And the second thing is I need to go buy a truck. <laughs> I went to a sermon and a fight broke out. Now, American culture is incredibly complex, but I'm going to break it down to three things. Now, there's, it's more than that, but I'm going to identify just three cultural traits, and then we're going to come back and, and try to make a little application. Number one is self-reliance. Part of American culture, I can get the job done. You know, back in the 60s, Simon and Garfunkel had the song, I am a rock. I am an island. I am a self-sufficient thing. Every truck commercial, forget the truck, the guy who's in the truck commercial is built ram tough. I mean, the dude is doing the work of 10 men, and don't you dare offer to help him. He can get the job done. I mean, does he look like he needs help? No. Now, here's the second cultural characteristic of America. Customer service. How can I help? Now, when you travel and you come back to the United States, you actually appreciate 
the level of customer service that you have here. It's nice to have waitresses in restaurants who smile and at least pretend to be happy that they are there. Um, but when you look at Jesus through the lens of American culture, we can reduce Jesus to a spiritual customer service specialist who's saying to us, Hi, what can I do for you? How can I help you? Paul is saying, No. Jesus is not a celestial butler here to meet your needs. He's enlisted you in his mission to get his deal done. That's a shift. Number three, Americans are kind of into privacy. That's my business. Now, we value private ownership of property. That's a good thing. Uh, but we can carry this idea too far. When we start thinking about our time, our money, our family, our home, all of this is ours. All of these are good things that God has given us, but when we see them as our possessions rather than things that belong to God that he has entrusted to us for stewardship, then we start to get something out of whack. God said to Abraham, I am blessing you so that you can be a blessing. So it's one thing to protect our personal privacy. It's another thing to tell God you can't come into these areas of my life. Wow. That's out of bounds. So here's our challenge. Rather than having the world's view of Jesus, we need the Jesus view of the world. If Jesus is going to have first place in the church, if Jesus is going to have preeminence in our lives, if Jesus is going to shape the perspective and the outlook by which we are living in this world, then we need to view the way the world the way that Jesus views the world. And this is exactly what he gives us in Matthew chapter 9. I want us to turn there and look at a passage where Jesus unfolds for us how to look at the world. So Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 35, this is what the gospel says. Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. So here's Jesus looking at his own nation. Here's Jesus unpacking us for us how to look at the place where God has plain, placed us. And the first thing that we see is that Jesus saw pain, not political enemies. He looked out and he saw people that her, were harassed and helpless. Now, if we're honest, there are people all over this nation of ours. There are people in your community that are harassed and helpless. Now, I just read this, this was just two days ago, just read an article that in the United States, the word busy has replaced the word fine. 
know, it used to be when you ask somebody how you doing, they say fine. Everything's fine. Now when you ask somebody how are you doing, busy. I'm busy. And I'm looking at that word busy and think, you know, people just feel harassed and helpless. They run up one side and down the other. So here's Jesus looking out and saying, here's, here's a Jesus perspective. People are harassed. People are helpless. And we have the answer. Well, the second thing is that Jesus saw a problem. He said they're like sheep without a shepherd. Now, this manifests through everybody doing that which is right in their own eyes. Every religion is okay. Every religion is cool. People are trying a thousand different things, but it's not working. There's no shepherd guiding, speaking truth, and lovingly corralling kind of this way. Again, that violates something very American. Who are you to tell me what I should think? Who are you to tell me that your religion is better than mine? Say, so, wait, 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 wait. Let me, let me change the terms of conversation right here. I'm not arguing better than or worse than my religion, your religion. I'm saying you have not yet met the king of the cosmos for whom you were created to meet and enjoy and get to know the ultimate one who is the one who will answer the deepest questions that plague your soul. Um, so the second thing is that Jesus saw the problem, sheep without a shepherd. The third thing is this, Jesus felt their plight. It says that he was moved. Rather than getting frustrated at the views and the ideas and the condition of his nation, Jesus was moved with compassion. I mean, I, if I'm putting myself into the place of Jesus, I can imagine myself having a conversation with the Father that goes kind of like this. Father, I just don't think they're going to get it. Can you just give me a, a ticket? Let me go to Spain at least. There's a better climate there. And, you know, I, like, like the Spanish music, it's, it's a little bit better. Father, I just don't think, no, Jesus, that wasn't his response. He was moved with compassion. You know, you know I, I like American football, and I like watching it when, when I get a chance. But whenever I see a stadium filled with people, more than the game, I'm like, oh, God. Oh, God, at least typically a large percentage of them, they don't know you. Oh, Father. Oh, Father. Oh, Father. Can we slow down enough to let the Spirit move us with compassion for the people who are around us? The next thing, though, is that Jesus saw an opportunity. He saw that the harvest was plentiful. Now, like Pastor Jim unpacked last night, this very profound thought that sin eventually becomes its own worst enemy. The corruption of sin ultimately becomes the compost in which the seeds of God's word take root and spring back to life. Now, if you had done a survey in Israel five years before John the Baptist showed up, people would not have been real encouraged about the state of their nation at the time. It was dominated by a foreign empire. Things were not going well, and there really was no hope that anybody could see. And in the moment of that 
pitiful darkness, the greatest revival ever in all history happened. So Jesus looked at it, what most people would have said, this is a dark situation. And Jesus said, guys, there's a great opportunity here. The harvest is plentiful. And that brought Jesus to a prayer point. He also made this observation that the harvest is understaffed. So he gave his disciples, here's what I want you to do. There's a prayer point that comes out of this. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the harvest. And when you read the Gospels, you see that Jesus was actually telling the disciples in their prayer to create a pathway that they themselves would walk into. Jesus later sent them out as the harvesters in this harvest that Jesus saw was plentiful. When we pray this prayer, we're praying for ourselves. We're praying that God would grant us the grace, and the mercy, and the compassion, and the perseverance to be the harvesters in this harvest that our Father has placed us in. And so as we, as we wrap this up, there's a, there's a two-step invitation here that, that we need to wrestle with. First one is to see Jesus for who he really is. We live in a society that is perpetually trying to just make Jesus one among many. Paul's reminding us, no, remember who Jesus is. King of the cosmos, head of the church, first of a new humanity, Lord of salvation, governor of history. He is the preeminent one. The second thing, so we need to see our mission, our nation, for what it really is, and that is a mission field. It's a needy place where people are harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Now, there are lots of people in this nation who have different views about life and about work and about the direction that our nation should go. And it's easy for us as Christians to feel very defensive when we encounter people who think that our nation should go in a different direction than the way that we think it should go. And this is not helped by the structure of our political cycle. So that every two years, there's a big election that becomes the most important election yet in the history of the nation. And then two years later, that one's the most important in the history of the nation. And two years after that is, and then, when, you, when it lands on the year that's the presidential election, oh my goodness gracious, the apocalypse hinges on. <laughs> Jesus stood in front of Pilate and said, I just want to be real clear about one thing. My kingdom is not of this world. But what happens is that every two years, just because of the election cycle, we are trained, we are discipled by the media to see our nation in terms of red states and blue states. I want to be as clear as I can. Jesus does not see red states and blue states. Jesus sees a nation that is harassed and helpless. Jesus sees sheep without a shepherd. We're trained to think, well, there's good guys and there's bad guys. No, there's people that Jesus has saved and there's people 
that he wants to save. There are those who are his children and those who are not yet his children. Today, Jesus is calling us to see our nation the way that he sees it. And the action point that helps us do this is to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers. So as we close today, this is what I'd like us to do, just to take a couple of moments. And if we can, just to do what Jesus has told us to do, to pray for our nation and to pray that the Lord of the harvest will send laborers into his harvest and to pray with the realization that that might mean you actually stepping outside of your home and sharing the love and the mercy and the grace of Christ with your neighbor or your work colleague or someone that you see weekly at the club that you go to. I know it's a radical thought that God might involve you in his harvest, but there's really no other way to live because this is the life that our Lord called us to when he said, follow me. Let's go to God in prayer. Our God, we come before you and first, Lord, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for your word that Paul gave to these Colossians reminding us about who Jesus is. Lord, we confess that even though our idols are not Apollo and Zeus and Athena and Aphrodite, Lord, we confess that we are surrounded by idols. And if we're honest, sometimes these idols speak to our own hearts. Lord, first, we pray that you would forgive us for those areas where we have allowed affection for other things to crowd out our affection for you. Where we have tolerated in our own hearts some kind of secondary idolatry, oh God. Lord, please forgive us. Lord, thank you for your word that calls us back to see the preeminence of Jesus who has first place in everything. Lord, we pray this afternoon that you would have first place in our lives, that you would be Lord and King and God. And if there's any competition in our own souls, oh God, Lord, we pray that you would just slay that, that you would refresh us in the beauty and the glory of Christ, that all those competing voices would simply fall away. And second, Lord, we hold our nation before you. Lord, we thank you for this nation. Lord, we thank you for the freedom that we have here. We thank you that we can meet like this without threat of being arrested, being harassed. God, you've given us so much. Lord, we ask that Lord, we ask that you would help us to be faithful stewards of what you have given us, God. Lord, we ask that as we look at our nation, that we could view it through the lens of who you are, that we could see our nation the way that you see it, O oh God. That we could see our nation the way that Jesus 
saw his nation. Lord, that rather than seeing cultural enemies or political enemies or lifestyle enemies, Lord, that we would see people who are hurt, broken, harassed, and helpless. They're sheep without a shepherd. And Lord, we, we take this step in a very sober way to do what Jesus said to do, to pray to you, the Lord of the harvest, to send laborers into your harvest. Lord, we believe that what Jesus said about the Israel of his day is true of the America of our day, that there is a harvest, that the fields are white, O oh God. Lord, the level of sin and corruption has created a kind of spiritual openness, God. And I pray that you would make us sensitive, that we would be led by your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would grant us the graciousness and the boldness to describe and point people to this beautiful one that we've been celebrating today, to this glorious one, this one who lived and died and lived again, to Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would send laborers into the harvest. It's your harvest, God, and we pray over it, Lord. Your kingdom come, your will be done. May your purposes be established in the United States of America, O oh God. We hold this nation before you. Your kingdom come, your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen.